Good morning. <clears throat> my name is Luke, and this is my son Reuben, and we'll be reading scripture this morning, starting in Daniel chapter 5. And this is the New International Reader's Version. King Belshazzar gave a huge banquet. He invited a thousand of his nobles to it. He drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to his servants. He commanded them to bring in some gold and silver cups. They were the cups his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem. Belshazzar had them brought in so everyone could drink from them. That included the king himself, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines. So the servants brought in the gold cups. The cups had been taken from God's temple in Jerusalem. The king and his nobles drank from them. So did his wives and concubines. As they drank the wine, they praised their gods. The statues of those gods were made out of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, or stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared. They wrote something on the plaster of the palace wall. It happened near the lampstand. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale. He was so afraid that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking together. The king sent for those who tried to figure things out by using magic. He also sent for those who study the heavens. All of them were wise men in Babylon. Then the king spoke to them. He said, I want one of you to read this writing. I want you to tell me what it means. Whoever does this will be dressed in purple clothes. A gold chain will be put around his neck, and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they couldn't read the writing. They couldn't tell him what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified. His face grew more pale, and his nobles were bewildered. The queen heard the king and his nobles talking, so she came into the dining hall. King Belshazzar, may you live forever, she said. Don't be afraid. Don't look so pale. I know a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. He has understanding and wisdom and good sense, just like the gods. He was chief of those who tried to figure things out by using magic, and he was in charge of those who studied the heavens. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him to that position. King Nebuchadnezzar did this because he saw what the man could do. This man's name is Daniel. Your father called him Belteshazzar. He has a clever mind and knowledge and understanding. He is able to tell what dreams mean. He can explain riddles and solve hard problems. Send for him. He'll tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought to the king. The king said to him, Are you Daniel? Are you one of the prisoners my father, the king, brought here from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you. I've also heard that you have understanding and good sense and special wisdom. The wise men and those who practice magic were brought to me. They were asked to read this writing and tell me what it means, but they couldn't. I have heard that you are able to explain things and solve hard problems. I hope you can read this writing and tell me what it means. If you can, you will be dressed in purple clothes. 
a gold chain will be put around your neck, and you will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king. He said, you can keep your gifts for yourself. You can give your rewards to someone else, but I will read the writing for you. I'll tell you what it means. Your majesty, the most high God, was good to your father, Nebuchadnezzar. He gave him authority and greatness and glory and honor. God gave him a high position. Then people from every nation became afraid of the king. That was true no matter what language they spoke. The king put to death anyone he wanted to. He spared anyone he wanted to spare. He gave high positions to anyone he wanted to, and he brought down anyone he wanted to bring down. But his heart became very stubborn and proud, so he was removed from his royal throne. His glory was stripped away from him. He was driven away from people. He was given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He ate grass just like an ox does. His body became wet with the dew of heaven. He stayed that way until he recognized that the Most High God rules over all kingdoms on earth. He puts anyone he wants to in charge of them. But you knew all that, Belshazzar. After all, you are Nebuchadnezzar's son. In spite of that, you are still proud. You have taken your stand against the Lord of heaven. You had your servants bring cups from his temple to you. You and your nobles drank wine from them. So did your wives and concubines. You praised your gods. The statues of those gods are made out of silver, gold, bronze, iron, wood, or stone. They can't see or hear or understand anything. But you didn't honor God. He holds you in his hand, your very life and everything you do. So he sent the hand that wrote on the wall. Here is what was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. And here is what these words mean. The word mene means that God has limited the time of your rule. He has brought it to an end. The word tekel means that you have been weighed on scales and you haven't measured up to God's standard. The word perez means that your authority over your kingdom will be taken away from you. It will be given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar commanded his servants to dress Daniel in purple clothes. So they did. They put a gold chain around his neck, and he was made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, was killed. His kingdom was given to Darius the Mede. Darius was 62 years old. And the second reading will be 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. I am speaking to the elders among you. I was a witness of Christ's sufferings, and I will also share it in the glory that is going to come. I am making my appeal to you as one who is an elder together with you. Be shepherds of God's flock, the believers under your care. Watch over them, though not because you have to. Instead, do it because you want to. That's what God wants you to do. do it, don't do it because you want to get money in dishonest ways. Do it because you really want to serve. Don't act as if you were a ruler over those under your care. Instead, be an example to the flock. The chief shepherd will come again, and you will receive a crown of glory. It is a crown that will never fade away. 
In the same way, I'm speaking to you who are younger. Follow the lead of those who are older. All of you put on a spirit free of pride towards one another. Put it on as if you were your clothes. Do it because scripture says, God opposes those who are proud, but he gives grace to those who are humble. So make yourselves humble. Put yourselves under God's mighty hand. Then he will honor you at the right time. Turn all your worries over to him. He cares about you. Be watchful and control yourselves. Your enemy, the devil, is like a roaring lion. He prowls around looking for someone to swallow up. Stand up to him. Remain strong in what you believe. You know that you are not alone in your suffering. The family of believers throughout the world is going through the same thing. God always gives you all the grace you need, so you will only have to suffer for a little while. When God himself will build you up again, he will make you strong and steady. And he, was chosen you, he has chosen you to share in his eternal glory because you belong to Christ, given him the power forever and ever. Amen. Good morning. So long, I'm going to move some furniture. So I'm a little worried. How this impending feeling. I just feel it coming. I'm going to lose my job at the graffiti removal company. Yeah, the writing's on the wall. Sorry, that's, that's my uh, week opener for today's lesson from Daniel 5. About the mysterious writing on the wall at Belshazzar's party. This is a story about pride versus God's sovereignty learning from others, and trusting God to use us to bring important messages to those around us. And I promise to keep this to two hours absolute max. Please pray with me as we begin today's message. Father God, we thank you for your word that teaches and instructs us. We invite your Holy Spirit here this morning, Lord, to assist us in that. Lord, I pray that you give us ears to hear, minds that understand, and hearts that change. In the name of the Lord Jesus, I pray. Amen. So, true story. I have a junk email address I use when necessary, and it's I'm proud of my humility at yahoo.ca. Yeah, I know, a little goofy, but um, a few months ago at tax time, I was using my tax prep software and I needed to call the helpline because I just needed help with something. First question that she asked was, Could I have your email address, please? So I provided to her, but what I came next was quite surprising. She really laid into me about my email address. Like she literally was asking questions like, do you have a besetting problem? What kind of issue caused you to create that address? Are you okay? My, my wife was, I had her on speakerphone, like she, you know, evidence that, that this was actually happened. So rather astounded, I tried to explain, hey, it's just one of my lame jokes. Can we just deal with my question, please? But I seriously couldn't get past her. So I literally ended up telling her I was going to have to disconnect and try again later, and I hung up. I was really fascinated that it actually stirred that kind of response. I wonder what kind of experience with pride that this lady was connecting to that it really seemed to have struck a nerve. So let's turn to today's story about pride and God's correction. Without much preamble, the text opens with King Belshazzar hosting a big get-together. And by the way, to avoid any confusion, this chapter is about King Belshazzar, while Daniel is referred to as Belteshazzar. So similar names, but definitely unrelated. Anyway, in this opening scene, 
while not explicit in the text, it can be safely assumed that this was not a quiet glass of wine accompanying a lovely buffet. All signs point to this being a carousing bit of debauchery. Customarily, the king would have been on a raised platform, so he's drinking and putting on a show in front of the people. Further, looking at historically similar stories from the time period, such as that described in Esther chapter 1, where King Xerxes' shindigs involved a limitless flow of alcohol, we tend to support this view as well. And finally, the writings of ancient Greek historians confirm this was an orgy of revelry and blasphemy. So this big parte is the setting for King Belshazzar to have the temple goblets brought in for his party. These were gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar swiped from the Jerusalem temple. And by the way, the passage refers to Nebuchadnezzar as his father, but Nabonidus is actually understood to be Belshazzar's actual father. The explanation is that the term here generically implies an ancestor and descendant relationship or possibly a predecessor and successor relationship. So it's commonly assumed that Nebuchadnezzar is actually Belshazzar's grandfather. Not that that's super important right now, but I mention as it becomes a bit more important later. In any case, while drinking from the consecrated goblets of the Hebrew people, he leads the people in praising false and inanimate gods. One scholar suggests that superstition alone would normally guard someone from putting sacred vessels to such a use. So this again supports the view that he's being ostentatious and a wee bit out of control. In fact, through this sacrilege, there's an element of gloating or superiority over the Hebrews for using their special cups in this way. It fits the pattern that Belshazzar is being spiteful to Yahweh. So with that as a backdrop, the festivities come to a, grounding, a grinding halt. Out of nowhere, a hand appears, writing the most unusual message on the wall. The manifestation of the hand is similar to the fourth person appearing in the fiery furnace that we learned about last week, chapter 3. You can picture the room changing in an instant. The DJ stops the turntable. Silence befalls the room. The dancers are frozen in position. The bartender's jaw hits the floor. And Belshazzar is suddenly incontinent. Instantly, the king is acutely aware that maybe there is a power greater than him after all. What is the source of this mysterious hand? What do these words mean? So he calls for his sages and astrologers to explain it to him. He's desperate to know, to hear the interpretation, and he promises great gifts as an incentive. Clothed in royal purple, a gold chain around their neck, and made the third highest in the kingdom. And that's next in line after Nabonidus, as discussed earlier, Belshazzar's father, who was sort of assumed, understood that they had like a co-regency thing going on in ruling, and then Belshazzar uh, being uh, second. So Nabonidus and Belshazzar, and then it would be whoever interpreted successfully. Much to the king's dismay, the magicians and astrologers struck out. They couldn't help him. And we shouldn't be surprised by this because we know the ways of the Lord are beyond human comprehension. And God has chosen Daniel for the task of explanation to interpret the message from God himself. But now Belshazzar is really scared. I think he deduces that if his own wise men cannot help with this, there must be a powerful God at the source of this whole thing. And this is where Daniel's reputation precedes him. 
While he was not a central figure in Belshazzar's government, the queen had not forgotten him. She speaks highly of him, remembering as a spiritual man, a wise man, and a skillful man. We can be sure that she fully endorsed him on his LinkedIn profile. Belshazzar makes the same offer of rewards to Daniel that he made to his own men. Royal robes, a gold chain, and a high ranking in the kingdom. Note that these are the worldly motivations that he, the king, can relate to. Possessions, position, and power. And that's exactly what's wrong with him. But Daniel says, keep your stuff, but I'll help you out. In the next section, the king receives the message from the Lord via Daniel. But before Daniel gets into actual writing and its meaning, he gives Belshazzar a bit of a history lesson from chapter 4. He recounts the story of his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar and his fall from pride. Yahweh declared that his egotism and air superiority cost him his kingdom, and he was sentenced to live with the wild animals for seven years to eat grass like cattle, which is known as boanthropy, I recently learned, so there's your trivia piece for today. It wasn't until Nebi acknowledged God's sovereignty and omnipotence that his sanity and honor were restored, and his kingdom was returned in all its splendor. But Belshazzar did not heed the example. In verse 22, O Belshazzar, you have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. So the Lord brings three charges against him in verses 22 and 23. He is filled with pride. He has desecrated the temple vessels. He has worshipped false gods. And the second half of verse 23 brings the crux of the matter. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. And that is why the Lord sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And on to the handwritten message, and a clever one it is. Each term is a play on words in Aramaic. And if anybody knows me, you know, I love a good pun or play on words. They are weights or units of money, but they have other meanings as well. First, we have mene mene. This is derived from mina, which is a unit of money though it also means numbered. God has numbered the days of Belshazzar's kingdom. Regarding the many, many, normally I don't like being redundant or saying things twice, but here it seems it is duplicated for emphasis. And as we will see, it's not his days that are numbered. At this point, he only has hours left in his life. Tekel, this means a shekel, which is a coin as well, though it also means weighed. Belshazzar has been weighed on God's scales and found deficient. Then finally, we have parson, or perez. The message on the wall uses the plural word parson, though Daniel in his interpretation used perez, which is the singular form. Note if your translation you're looking at says you farsin, that just means and parson. Now this is a great one because it has a triple meaning. It can mean a half shekel, or divided, or Persia. And as Daniel indicates, his kingdom is going to be divided and given to the Medes and Persians. So it's interesting that these economic and financial terms are used to deliver Belshazzar's sentence. It seems fitting that the obsessions of the empire, power, money, and tribute become the symbolic basis for judgment. And that very evening, the king is slain and Darius the Mede takes over his kingdom. So in an instant, Belshazzar is squashed like a bug. One minute, he thinks he's the king of the world. A few months later, his life is a wreck. Well, let's talk about some lessons for application that we can take from this. I have three for you, each focused on a main character 
from our story today. Our first, um, our first item concerning our sermon series is Facing Lions. We should discuss, um, discuss the, uh, the lion facing Belshazzar, and his lion is pride. And I hope you get that pun, lion, pride, pride of lions. Yeah, anyway. um, so the Lord brings three charges against him in verses 22 and 23. Sorry. <clears throat> the lesson that, uh, that he, uh, for, for Belshazzar was, and for us, don't get too high on yourself or boast in your self-sufficiency. God can bring you down and remind you of your dependence on him at any time. In Daniel 4.37, which is the verse just immediately prior to this chapter, the last verse of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar admits after his ordeal, those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. In case you need any more examples, there are others we could talk about. There's Pharaoh or Saul, disciples arguing about who is the greatest. But I'd like to augment our lesson with this story of Haman from the book of Esther because he offers such a good example of self-destructive pride. Do you remember Haman? This is the guy that was so enraged when Mordecai would not kneel before him and pay him honor that he wanted to kill him. In fact, he was so full of himself, they looked for a way to destroy all of the Jews, and he seeks an edict from the king to do just that. Meanwhile, another part of the story, Mordecai tips off Esther to a plot that he had overheard to assassinate King Xerxes. So Esther approaches the king and invites him and Haman to a banquet with the goal of essentially seeking a cancellation of this edict for the Jewish people. And get a load of this guy from Esther chapter 5, verses 9 to 12. And Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home, and he sent and brought his friends and his wife, Zeresh. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches, the number of his sons, all the promotions with which the king had honored him, and how he had advanced him above the officials and the servants of the king. Then Haman said, Even Queen Esther let no one but me come with the king to the feast she prepared. And tomorrow also I am invited by her together with the king." Like, wow, this guy's a piece of work. Strutting around with a chest puffed out, nose in the air. But it gets better. Let's see what we have in the next chapter. Here, the king wants to reward Mordecai for the fact that he saved him from assassination by exposing this plot. So he asks Haman for some advice. So reading now from chapter 6, verses 6 to 9. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. So Haman assumes the king is talking about him. He thinks, like, this is his big chance. It's going to be an honor fest, like the inaugural national Haman Day. 
It's got all planned out. You know, three bows and you're the best. Get you a coupon for a free burger at the food tent. This is funny stuff. You know, I think, you know, Hollywood makes movies about stuff like this. I think if you went to IMDb, this is what it would say. It'd be category, comedy, drama, plot outline. A pompous court official unknowingly prepares admiration and exaltation for his worst enemy when he actually thinks it's for himself. You see, pride is a distorted mirror that obstructs clear thinking and reason. Haman just could not see beyond himself. So the tables turn, and the king commands Haman to do just as he said, but for Mordecai. So Haman robes Mordecai, leads him on horseback through the city streets, proclaiming, this is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. Then to add to the irony, when the king finds out it was Haman behind the idea of killing the Jews, his Haman hanged on the very gallows that Haman had built for Mordecai. He was served a lethal dose of humble pie. I'd like to take a short passage now um, from the Psalms, um, as well an excerpt from our New Testament passage. Can't have too much scripture on Sunday morning. Psalm 75, 4 to 7. I say the boastful do not boast, and to the wicked do not lift up your horn, symbolizing strength. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, and not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. And then an excerpt, just a couple of verses from 1 Peter 5. 5, 6. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he may exalt you. You see, pride is a sin because you're choosing your own wisdom over God's superior insight. Nor does it recognize our subordinate status relative to God's authority. We're just not bigger than God. Every talent, every bit of knowledge, everything we are is from the hand of God. So we need to get over ourselves and acknowledge our creator and savior as the ultimate power and sovereignty over our lives. If you exalt yourself, striving for position and honor, you'll be humbled by God. But if you humble yourself, he'll find a way to exalt you, whether it be in this life or the one to come in eternity. A couple of questions for you. Do you feel as though you've legitimately missed out on something? Have others received credit that you thought should have been yours? Have you been passed over at your job because of favoritism rather than skill or ability? Are your contributions not getting the recognition you think you deserve? I know as, as human beings, it's hard, it's hard but don't, don't let these things bother you. Be content to serve where God has put you. Trust him that in his marvelous timing, he will lift you up, though in his way and not necessarily the ways of the world. And remember that human praises have no value in eternity. Our second lesson we're going to take from Nebuchadnezzar. We need to learn from others who have gone before us. Learn from their example, whether it be positive or negative. Daniel devotes a fair section to Nebuchadnezzar's story, so I think it holds significance for us. Reading in verse 18 that God granted him sovereignty, and greatness, glory, and splendor. But in verse 20, we learn that when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he lost it all. And as we covered earlier, 
Well, Belshazzar fails. Where he fails is highlighted in verse 22. Again, I'll say, and you, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this. Nebuchadnezzar was a beacon for what not to do. What part of eating grass for seven years did Belshazzar not get? Back in the year 2000, there was this young startup company that for its first three years was trying to make a go of an online movie business. Some of you may know um, that there was an economic bust at that time led by the technology sector. That made things tough for the company. So its founders began to pursue a possible business combination with a mega firm called Blockbuster that rented out physical movies. Then Blockbuster CEO, John Antioco, waved the company off for a few months, not wanting to be bothered. Then suddenly, late one day, with a small company's owners on a corporate retreat in rural California, Blockbuster executives request a meeting with them in Dallas the very next morning. The arrogance of the short notice proposal itself is a bit much, but the business owners pulled out all the stops to go to the meeting. The company's finances were struggling, yet they booked a charter plane for $20,000. And the plane happened to belong to Vanna White, by the way. And got to the meeting on time. When they showed up at Blockbuster's headquarters, everything seemed designed to impress, smelling of wealth and power. One of the visiting business owners named Mark even suggested the CEO's shoes were probably worth more than Mark's car. Well, the mogul said he would hear them out, but it better be good. The company presented a respectful partnership proposal that recognized Blockbuster's strengths, but put forward their own team as managing what would be Blockbuster's online business. Just as CEO responded, this whole internet hysteria is completely overblown. But if we were to buy you, how much would we be talking? $50 million was the reply. Even though it would have been an easy purchase for them, having over $400 million in the bank, CEO tried desperately to control his laughter, and without considering a counter or having much more discussion, the meeting was soon over. While Blockbuster went back to their physical rental service, while the online company they dismissed started to grow. After seeing their online success, Blockbuster did launch a weak online off offering a few years later. But Antioco, continuing his pattern of cockiness, was ousted in CEO in 2007 due to a salary dispute. However, his replacement, Jim Keyes, wasn't much better. He didn't learn either. He didn't learn from his predecessor and did not adapt to the industry change. Wouldn't budge from the brick-and-mortar retail store model as his primary focus. Meanwhile, that little company that once approached them for a deal has now grown into a full-blown direct competitor. But Keyes denied his competition and refused to meaningfully adapt. In his hubris, Keyes was quoted as saying in 2008, I've been frankly confused by this fascination everybody has with the streaming business. They really don't have or do anything that we can't or already do ourselves. Well, two years later, 2010, Blockbuster filed for bankruptcy. Their big head leadership couldn't see past previous successes to recognize change on the horizon, and then once they did, they were just too slow to react. Meanwhile, that other little company, at the time looking for a successful partnership with Blockbuster for 50 million, you might have heard of these guys, I'm not sure, they go by the name of Netflix. At its peak late last year, the company was valued at $300 billion. Who do you have in your life, currently or previously, that can serve as an example for you? Are you bound to repeat their mistakes? Or do they provide a rich and positive, meaningful example for your life? I challenge you to take a moment, whether that's now or this week, on some people that you can draw some valuable lessons from. 
Because you know what? If someone you know had to learn the hard way in life, why not extract that learning for yourself without having to experience the hard part? Our third lesson, considering the book, is about Daniel. Let's take our third lesson from him. Daniel faced the lion of a tough message. The message that he brings is not a positive one, but he's still faithful to the word God calls him to share. And he can bring this message because he previously earned the respect to be heard due to his life of integrity and obedience to God's calling. Belshazzar listened to Daniel because of his reputation. So do elements of the story remind you of anyone else? Audience question, is there another Old Testament figure that comes to mind? There are, in fact, several parallels between this chapter and the story of Joseph in Genesis 39 through 41. Joseph established his integrity when he repels the advances of Potiphar's wife, among other things. Then in prison, he attends to and interprets the dreams of the cupbearer and baker. Later, Pharaoh calls upon his astrologers to interpret the dream, and they fail. But the cupbearer recommends Joseph to Pharaoh, and he is called up to interpret the dreams. Then, upon successfully doing so, he's put in charge over the whole land of Egypt and presented with a gold chain. Sounds pretty familiar. So both Joseph and Daniel proved their integrity, reliability, and honor. Both were recognized and recommended by non-believers, and both were rewarded by God for their obedience and faithfulness. You can be confident in fulfilling what God has called you to do. And in doing so, maybe we have to take a step of faith, maybe stretch our comfort zone. Daniel was willing to be different, to stand out. Who knows the song, Dare to Be Daniel? I remember singing that in church when I was a kid. Especially if your reputation is solid, if you've earned respect, people are likely to listen. Doesn't mean everyone wants to like you, or they'll necessarily like what you have to say but they're much more likely to hear you out. Back to the questions for you. How do you present yourself in your workplace or school? Or among friends or neighbors? Would others say you model honesty? Do you give others reason to turn to you for help or advice that comes from proper motivations and without judgment? Recall the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 16. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. How are we to bring the gospel of salvation to those around us if we don't have the confidence and trust of others in the first place? Well, if there's one thing I took away from the preaching class that us laymen worked through with Mike, it's that every sermon should point to Christ. So I hope you're listening, Mike. Christ is our ultimate example of humility, Philippians 2. He gave up a heavenly existence to come to earth to be our Savior, taking our transgressions upon him and being rejected by the Father who by his nature cannot tolerate sin. But following his sacrificial obedience, he was raised victorious to sit at the right hand of God. The supreme example of restoration and exaltation. How can we but be humbled and recognize our proper place in light of what the Son has done for us? In conclusion, I ask you this question. Do you need writing on your wall? Are there any insights you've heard this morning that might encourage you to make a change before a divine intervention is required? Maybe we can think of other people that we wish would hear some of these lessons for today. I know I'm guilty of that. Sometimes you hear a sermon and, oh, you know, wish Joe was here. No, let's set that aside. Focus on your own heart and ask, where, O oh Lord, 
do I need a work done in me? Please pray with me. Oh, gracious God, merciful God, we praise you for your goodness and faithfulness to us and how you've demonstrated that to us over and over. Lord, may you help us to trust, to believe, to know that you are in control for ultimate benefit and growth. Strengthen us when we are weak that we might bring the message of your goodness to those around us for the glory and furtherance of your kingdom. In the powerful and precious name of Jesus, I pray, amen.